So Genesis chapter 30, you remember uh, last week, I mean, it's kind of comical to me, uh, last week, you know, uh, Jacob wants to go. And Laban says, hey, I know I've been blessed because of you, so why don't you just name your wages? And uh, Jacob's like, okay, well, I'll take all the streaked, the spotted, and the speckled sheep and goats. And, and Laban's just like, this guy's an idiot. Oh, my goodness. You know what? That's like one in a thousand, one in 2,000 come out that way. If it would only be as you say. And, uh, you know, that was, that was last week. And then in Genesis chapter 31, we read, now Jacob, as he's been watching Jake, uh, Laban's sheep, now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has acquired all this wealth. Now Laban's sons, of course, they're heirs of Laban's um, you know, estate. And what they're doing is they're speaking now from their own perspectives. Jacob hasn't stolen anything. Jacob hasn't taken anything from them. Laban's sons are envious of how much Jacob's wealth has increased in comparison to their wealth. Um, they believe that, you know, he's stolen this. You know, how else could it be? And the problem is, again, they were envious of what God was doing in Jacob's life. And envy is, you know, something that it's going to distort the truth for us. It's going to cause us to believe something that's not real. Envy is no small sin either. Envy, it's not something that we should just dismiss as believers because envy is what led to the crucifixion of our Savior. Matthew 27, 18 says, For he, and speaking of Pilate there, knew that they had handed him, speaking of Jesus, over because of envy. The religious leaders were envious of Jesus, of his ministry. The people were following him, and they were afraid they were going to lose their place. They were going to lose their, I don't know, income, whatever the case may be. And so it was out of envy that they handed the Savior over to be crucified. Verse 2, And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable towards him as before. And the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Now, this is actually the first time it's recorded that God spoke to Jacob. He reveals to Jacob what he wants Jacob to do, and with that, he follows it up with a promise. And what a wonderful promise it is. I mean, I'm telling you, uh, that God would be with him wherever he went, that's a tremendous promise. You know, it's a wonderful promise. And, uh, you know, we share in that promise, actually. Uh, God is with us wherever we go. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. His spirit lives within us. And I personally, I take great comfort in this particular promise. You know, and I hope you do too. We need to understand that if God is for you, we sang it tonight, if God is for you, who cares what others think? Who cares what their countenance is like towards you? If God is with you, if he's calling you to uh do something or go someplace, who cares what other people think? You know, it's not important. Jacob should understand in regards to God, there's no variation of shadow or turning. Um, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is totally able to take care of, uh, you know, those 
He's able to protect those that are his. In verse 4 it says, So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field, to his flock. He gets them away so nobody can hear their conversation. And he said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it's not favorable towards me as before. But the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might I've served your father. I mean, Jacob was a hard worker. Yet your father has deceived me. Now, it's kind of funny. It's comical. Jacob's upset, right? Because he's getting a little taste of his own medicine. You know, Laban, he's deceived me. You know, I wonder if he had a tear in his eye. But uh, he says, your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to hurt me. So it's been six years now since Genesis chapter 30. And in those six years, Laban has changed Jacob's wages ten different times. Verse 8 says, If he said thus, a speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock bore speckled. And if he said, the streak shall be your wages, then all the streak, all the sheep bore streak. Uh, streak, you know, lambs and goats. And You know, what J- Jacob is doing, he's explaining to Leah and Rachel that if Laban said, the speckled shall be your wages, Laban would change his mind after seeing that the, all the offspring were speckled. He would say, well, you know, you can't have the speckled, right? And then Laban would say, you know, the streaks would be your wages. But then the flock began to bear just streaked lambs and, and uh, I don't know, what's it, kids? That's baby goats. Kids. Isn't that interesting? Because goats are stubborn. You just do with it what you need to do with that, you know? But again, you know, they would produce all these streaked, and then Laban would change his mind. He would say, no, I can't give you the streak. And so this was going on for 10 years. Uh, sorry, six years, 10 different times this occurred. And Jacob uh, is saying, you know, it's just not right. And he's frustrated with it. In verse 9, so God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived, that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. So Jacob is now telling his wife where he got this idea that the streak, the speckled, and the spotted would be his wages. You know, it wasn't Jacob's idea. It was God's plan to bless Jacob in this way. And you know what? God shows him this plan through a dream. So my question is, does God still speak in dreams? Does he still speak through people in dreams? And you know, the answer is, yeah, he does. I tell you what, if you're a reader, I encourage you, get the book, Dreams and Visions. And you know, it's a, it's a book that chronicles the dreams that many people in the Muslim world are having today. I tell you what, one of, if not the greatest revival going on in the world today is in the Muslim world, you know? I personally know quite a few Muslims that have told me that they've had dreams of Jesus coming to them and telling them, go find this missionary or go talk to that person, and they're going to tell you the way of salvation. I mean, Jesus himself shows up and and tells them. And you know, God still speaks through dreams today. It's a powerful tool. Especially, you know, it's just so funny, just the the, um, arrogance of mankind. You know what? You can't shut the gospel out of a country. God has ways. God's powerful. I love it. 
Anyway, verse 11, then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream saying, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift your eyes now and see. All the rams which leap on the flock are streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. For I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. I think it's real important to note here, what does it say? The angel of God is speaking to Jacob here. And what does he say? The angel of God says, I am the God of Bethel. So again, we've talked about this in the past. This is a Christophany. This is a a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. It's his appearance in the Old Testament prior to his his, uh, virgin birth. And Bethel is where Jacob first encounters God in a personal way. And it's been 20 years uh, since God, or since Jacob had this dream of this ladder reaching from earth up to heaven with God standing at the top of the ladder. And it's been 20 long, hard years. And this was God's way of calling Jacob back to a place where he first met the Lord. God is calling him to return to a first love, as it were. You know, it says in Revelations 2, verses 4 and 5, we don't lose our first love. You know what it says? You guys know? Yeah, what's it say? Yeah, we, we left it. You know what? We don't lose it, we, we leave it. We get caught up in the things of the world. You know, we get caught up in careers and, and buying homes and working hard to provide for our families, you know, taking our kids here and there, you know? And that combined with just trials, that combined with difficulties and hardships in our life, you know, if we're not careful, we can end up just drifting. And drifting, it's just imperceivable. You don't even know you're drifting. I mean, my idea uh, of that verse in Hebrews 2 is you're just in a boat and it's tied up to a dock. And if you don't give more earnest heed to those things we hear, that knot is just going to untie you're going to be napping. The next thing you know, the dock's no place in sight. You're just gone. And we can't allow things to crowd out the Lord in our life. We can't allow it. And we have to understand, you know what? It can happen. It can happen if we're not careful. And if we find that we've ever drifted, if we find our place like, man, I can't believe I'm in this place. I, this is not where I want to be. If we ever get to that place where we drifted, you know what we need to do is we need to remember the times and the places where the Lord did great works in us and he did great works for us, where he meant us in just wonderful ways. And as we remember these things, God reminds us he's still the same God that met our needs back then and his desire is to continue to meet our needs. He wants to meet our needs now. It wasn't just a back then kind of thing. It's a now and the Lord would call us back. If we ever find us, we're a place where we've drifted. The Lord would call us back to Bethel, to come home, and to return to our first love. Verse 14, Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there still any portion of inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? You know, he sold us. <laughs> Cracks me up. <laughs> He doesn't love us. He sold us. And also completely he consumed our money. 
For all these riches which God had taken from our Father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. And I just want to take a minute right here. You know, probably the way I go about it, it's a good 15 minutes, I don't know. But just we want to take some time and just look at this, you know. I want to make a few comments. All of us at one time or another has in one way or another struggled to understand, you know, what's God's will for my life? You know, how do we know if we should do this or if we should do that? How do we know if God's leading us to go here or to go there? Uh, how do we know? Well, I think that these verses, we have this great outline of how to understand God, how to understand God's will for, how to understand God's will for our life. This happens to be something that I frequently turn back to. I frequently think through these things when I'm trying to, to determine uh, what to do when I'm faced with a, a decision. You know, and I'm not saying that this is the only way to de determine God's will for your life. But this is a good way to determine God's will for your life, to help us make decisions regarding um, what God would have us do when we accompany this with prayer. This is just um, a really great way. Remember last week, Genesis 30, 25, I said, hey, we're going to refer back to this verse next week. Well, this is next week, and we're going to refer back to that verse. So you flip over page Genesis 30, 25, it says, and it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my country. The first thing that happened was there is a desire in Jacob's heart to return to the land. After 14 years, at that point, 14 years, Jacob says, you know, I need to get back to the land that God has given me. And after 14 years, this desire arose in his heart and he just you know, he had this, this feeling, you know, it's just time to move on. The second thing that we see is that the circumstances can change. Laban and his sons were not looking favorably upon Jacob anymore. God was stirring things up so it would no longer be comfortable for Jacob to stay here anymore with Laban. And a lot of times we just get real comfortable in our situations. We just get sedentary. And God has to stir things up. He changes the circumstances at times to get us to move forward. So he makes things a little uncomfortable for us. There's a desire to move on. That's the first thing. Then, then uh, things begin to change until we get to that place where we say, you know, it's time, to, it's time for a change. And then thirdly, we see the Lord spoke to Jacob, verse 3. God can and does speak to us through his word, through prayer, through a teaching, a Bible study, through another person. God does speak to us. Now the question is just, are we listening? God's always speaking. We just need to, to uh, tune our ears to listen to him. Uh, in this case, God spoke to Jacob through a dream. He had a dream to move on, and um, the circumstances, he has a desire to move on, I should say, not a dream, he has a desire to move on, the circumstances changed, but he didn't move until God spoke to him through this dream, until he heard from the Lord. What did he do? He waited. You know, the desire was there, but he waited. The circumstances had been changing, but he waited. Finally, the Lord spoke to him, and that's when he knew it was time to move. 
And then fourthly, the last thing that we see in this chapter is he brought it before his wives. He sought out wise counsel. He explained to them the desire he had and, and how he thought that God was uh, working. He explained to them, you know, what's been going on over the past few years, the circumstances. He told them what he thought God was saying to him. And he explained how the uh, speckled and the spotted and the streaked uh, sheep, how it was an evidence of how uh, he was hearing from the Lord. And in verse 16, Jacob's wife, his wives say, whatever God has said to you, do it. I mean, we're behind you. And I tell you what, these are great ways for at least me to discern God's will in my life. To me, it's so wonderful when your wife or when your husband, you know, confirms and agrees with you what God is doing, what he's, he's moving you to do, and then they encourage you to follow him. I mean, that's just such a blessing. And I got to tell you, I'll just be real. I've learned the hard way this lesson. I've learned the hard way. If Tina's not in it, I don't need to do it. You know? If Tina has an objection or she doesn't have a peace about something, for me it stops right there. Uh, I mean, we continue to seek the Lord together. We ask him to show us his will. But I'm not moving forward until she signs off on it. I tell you, I've learned the hard way. And uh, I consult my wife with every decision of any consequence. We talk about it. And if she says, I think it's the Lord, do, do all that he's shown you, that's when we go for it. You know, I've learned, like I said, the hard way. If Tina doesn't feel a peace about it, we stop and we wait. We wait till God changes our hearts so that we can be in agreement. It's such a wonderful safety net. You know, I'm the type of person like, hey, there's water, let's jump in. Tina's like, well, let's see the temperature first. Are you kidding me? Let's go. You know, and then I jump in, and I'm just like, my teeth are chattering. They're breaking out of my mouth. She's a balance. You know, our wives, our husbands, they're a balance. You know, if it, if it wasn't for me, Tina would never go, because that's not her nature. And if it wasn't for Tina, I would be going on to all kinds of crazy, silly things I wish I never would, would have got into. So just a quick recap how Jacob discerns God's will. First, there was a desire, Genesis 30, 25. Then circumstances changed, Genesis 31, 1 through 2. God spoke to Jacob's heart. That's Genesis 31, verse 3. He sought wise counsel. He sought wise counsel from his wives, uh, Genesis 31, 4 through 10. And I personally also add to this uh, James 3. Flip over to James 3 we'll, real quick, and we'll look at that together. This is the other half of the equation for me. James 3, verses 13 through 18. And it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, demonic, for where every envy and self-seeking, where, where envy and self-seeking is this, confusion and every evil thing are there. So does the decision that's to be made, does it have its roots in bitterness? Or is it self-seeking anyway? Then you don't do it. You don't, you don't do it. It's not from the Lord. This wisdom, it says, is not 
uh, wisdom at all. It's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. It's earthly in that it, it's, uh, it only has this life in view. It's, it's sensual in that it's carnal and it appeals to the flesh and it, and it only is seeking to gratify the flesh. And it's demonic in that envy and self-seeking, those are things that are rooted in pride. He goes on, if you go ahead with it, uh, if you go ahead with that type of decision based on those things, you know what? It's just going to cause confusion and ultimately it's going to make things worse. But then James, he continues, he says, but the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I mean, it's almost like God gives us this checklist to see if what we're trying to make a decision on is actually from Him. First, is it pure? Is this decision sought from a pure heart? In other words, it should, not, it should be without uh, sinful motives or attitudes. Is it peaceable? You know, is everyone affected by this decision? Do they have peace about this decision? Do they have peace about moving forward? Is it gentle? Is it willing to yield? If it doesn't go your way, are you willing to let it go? Or is it conciliatory? Right? Uh, the decision should be made free from a stubbornness and a hardness of heart. He says, fifthly, is it full of mercy and good fruits? What will be the fruit of this decision in the lives of those it involves? Sixthly, it says, is it without partiality? I mean, would you do it if it didn't go the way you think it's supposed to go? You know, are you trying to make uh, this decision because it benefits you over other people? Then you shouldn't do it. Is it without hypocrisy? Will making or seeking this decision make you look like something that you're not? You know, is that why you're, why you're wanting to do it? You know, is the decision presented honestly, or do you present it with half-truths, you know, intended only to get your way? And I think that the Lord gives us these things, Genesis 31 and James 3, as this checklist. At least, you know, that's how I use it, you know? Does what we're trying to decide to do, does it meet these seven items? You know, if so, after much prayer, go ahead with it. If it meets four out of seven, you know, you probably need to wait. But Gary, you know, I want it so bad. You know, I mean, it, it ticked the box for six of the seven items. It's, it's okay for me to go ahead, isn't it? Well, you know, I don't know. I'm not very smart. If God thought six out of the seven were okay, he would have just given us six instead of seven. I mean, that's the way I see it. I don't know. Uh, I want to seek the Lord in prayer. And I want to use... Uh, these passages of scriptures, Genesis 31, 1 through 16, James 3, 13, 1 through 8, when faced with trying to make a decision of God's will for my life, something that I have to make. It's one of the things that we, we talk about and I thought through in, in decision of coming up here. Every decision we've made for ministry, you know, has been based in those things and God has, God has honored it, I believe. Verse 17, then Jacob rose and, his, and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained, 
to, in Padan Aram to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. Rachel, she was a beautiful girl, remember, in face and in form. She was a beauty. Jacob, he chose a beautiful wife, but the beauty was only skin deep. You know, underneath, she was an idolater at heart, and she didn't want to leave without her gods, without her idols. It says in verse 20, And Jacob stole away unknown to Laban the Syrian, and that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the river and headed towards the mountain, uh, mountains of uh, Gilead. And uh, Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. And what we see here again is Jacob, man, he's just acting like typical Jacob. Instead of going to Laban and telling him, you know, what he was going to do, you know, instead of saying, God has shown me that it's time for me to return to my own land, you know, uh, he's shown me what he wants me to do, and it's for his glory, so I'm going to obey God. What does Jacob do? He just sneaks away in the night. It's just his way. In verse 22, And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. I mean, tell me this doesn't bless you. I mean, to see Jacob, how he's acting, and still God is willing to step in and act on Jacob's behalf and just protect him. Boy, you know what? It's just such an encouragement to me because I know the same tendencies that are in Jacob, they're in me. You know, they can also be found in me. You know, I'm not a schemer like Jacob, but I have enough of Jacob in me to know that, you know, I'm not beyond trying to manipulate things to benefit me. Um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not beyond telling a story with a bias. I'm not beyond doing something completely selfish and, you know, just motivated out of a selfish desires. And God still is willing to step in and act on my behalf, to protect me. I mean, it's just such a blessing. God's patience with me over probably these last five years, just because God has just revealed how patient he is. That's one of the most precious attributes to God in my life right now. Just that he's so very patient with me. You know, um, I'm so thankful for it. God is so marvelous. And God works even when we foolishly try to take matters into our own hands. And that's what we see here. In verse 24, But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night, and he said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tents in the mountains, and Laban has pitched his tents in the mountains of Gilead. So apparently they're just maybe, you know, a peak apart. You know, they can see each other's camp maybe. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you've stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken by the sword? You know, his girls couldn't get away from him fast enough. You know, they were just like, you want to go? Boom, let's go. And uh, 
He says, verse 27, why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? I might have sent you away with joy and song, with timbrel and harp, whatever. If you knew Laban the way Jacob knew Laban, you would know this is what's called an outright lie. Uh, <laughs> Laban wouldn't have done any of that stuff. Verse 28, and you did not allow me to kiss my sons. Big crocodile tears in his eyes. <laughs> eyes down. You didn't allow me to kiss my sons or my daughters. Now you've done foolishly in so doing. It's in my power to harm. To, to, it's in my power to do you harm. And that's the reason that Laban ran after Jacob right there. You know, it wasn't in his heart to throw Jacob and the girls a going away party. He wanted to overtake Jacob. He wanted to do him harm, and he wanted to take everything that he had, take it back to his place. But he says, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good or bad. Now, notice, uh, God isn't Laban's God, right? He refers to God as the God of your father. I have a feeling when God comes to you and says to you, you better be careful or else. I mean, you leave that conversation with clarity. You know, uh, after Laban cleaned up the mess that he made when God Almighty appeared to him, I, I bet you he, he understood exactly where he stood. In verse 30 says, And now when you have surely gone because you great, uh, and now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Uh, again, I just think this is so crazy. The God of heaven, the creator of heavens and earth, the one true and living almighty God stood in your presence. And you know what? You're concerned with these little household idols that your daughters took. You know, I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, I, I, how funny is it that your God can be stolen, you know? If your God can be stolen, maybe you want to choose another God, maybe a tougher God. I don't know. It's just ridiculous what men will worship, though, right? What kind of God is it that can be stolen? You know, it's funny to think about it, but it's so tragic to realize that there are people in this world, there are people in this town, that they worship gods that can be stolen. You know, cars, boats, nothing wrong with having a nice car, nothing wrong with having a boat. You know, nothing wrong with having a great job, nice house, you know, great weekends, you know, whatever. Nothing wrong with that. But when that becomes the priority in your life, that's when it's a problem. That's when it's a problem. Have you ever gone into an Asian restaurant and you've seen a little Buddha there someplace? You know, flowers or money or food or incense burning next to it, what, what have you? You know, that's their God and they're worshiping and praying for that thing. That food, that, that money, that's a sacrifice they're offering to that God. And, uh, you know, the, the reality is they just, they just bought them in some store and they just bowed down to them. And it's really, it's really sad to see, you know, that people worship these things as God. And I bet you, you know, Satan just gets this big laugh. I bet you he just laughs out loud when... You know, people will pray to anything other than the one true and living God. They pray to that little fat guy with the big stretched out earlobes that was bought in a thrift store. You know, it's so sad that people will allow themselves to become slaves to those things. 
And you know, idolatry, I've been in certain areas of the world where idolatry is just, it's just out there. You know, there's 50-foot statues that people are, are given everything instead of feeding their kids, given, uh, you know, food to, given their money to. It's, it's really sad. But idolatry is rampant in America. If you think about it, it is rampant in America. We're way more sophisticated to car- than to carve our idols out of wood or out of stone. You know, we don't do that. We leave them up here. Anytime somebody comes to you when you're witnessing to them and they say, you know, I think God is like this, or I think he's like that. You know, I think God is okay with me doing this, living with my boyfriend, sleeping with my girlfriend, whatever. If whatever they say I think, if it doesn't match up to the self-revelation of God and the Word of, and the Word of God in the Bible, you know what? Make no mistake about it. That's idolatry. They just didn't carve that God out. It's here, and this is where they're worshiping that God. It's, it's really, uh, you know, it's rampant in America. You know, this new age and this new wave of nonsensical uh, religion, you know, um, and verse 31, it gets me going. It makes me sad. Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. So why does Jacob flee at night? Because he's afraid. What a tragic thing that is. God just gave him a promise. You know, instead of trusting God's word, that God was going to be with them, and that God wanted to be, wanted him return to the land, instead of trusting God out of fear, he took matters into his own hands. He trusted in his schemes, in his plans, his ability, his strength to deliver him and his family from harm instead of trusting in God. What foolishness that is. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare. It's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. Now let me ask you this question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The fear of man is, is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. Is that something that you believe? And I mean, like, do you really believe it? Do you really believe that? Because if, if we would really believe that, why do we respond so fearfully when things come into our life that cause us to think, what am I going to do now? You know, how am I ever going to get through this? I mean, I tell you, look around today. I think the church as a whole is, today is in a state of panic. I really do. If it's not the pandemic that's causing fear in people, it's the election. If it's not the election that's causing fear in people, it's the economy. If it's not the economy that's causing fear in people within the church, it's global warming and the extreme weather patterns that, are, that we're experiencing around the world. If it's not one thing, it's another. For most people, though, today, I mean, COVID is gripping them with fear. It's just grab hold of their heart and it's just squeezing. And it shouldn't be that way in the church. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, 2 Timothy 1.7. As a church, the bride of Christ, we have nothing whatsoever to fear. We don't want to act foolishly, but we have nothing to fear. 
Do you believe that? And I mean, like, do you really, really believe that? God is able, more than able, to take care of and to step in and act on our behalf, even when we don't deserve it. You know what? If we will fear the Lord, we'll have no reason to fear anything else. If we'll just fear the Lord, we won't need to fear anything else because He's promised to take care of us, to be with us, to never leave us, to never forsake us. In fact, when we are faithless, He's faithful because He can't deny Himself. If you have uh, given your heart to Jesus, He's promised to see you through to the end. Why are you fearful, O oh, you of little faith? If God is for us, who can be against us? As believers, we should be witnesses to this world by not walking in fear that grips so many people in the church, grips so many people in the world who have no hope. And we have hope through the love of God that's been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is still the author and finisher of our faith. You know, we are more than conquerors. I mean, these are all Bible verses. These are all promises. Do you really believe that? We have nothing to fear. Flip over to Psalm 46. I love the Psalms. I, I quote the Psalms an awful lot. I hope you never get tired of the Psalms. I love them because, you know, it's just such a, a wide variety of emotions that uh, I think David and the rest of the psalmist were just spying on me and writing about, you know? Psalm 46, 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, Though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling selah. Think about that. Meditate on that. If all of that stuff happens, we have no reason to fear. And then the psalmist continues, drop down verse 10. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And we have nothing to fear. Do you believe that? Do you believe that today, church? You know what? If so, this is the question I would ask you. Are you living in a way that would cause people in the world to conclude that you believe God is on the throne and is in control? That's where our faith, that's where, like J. Vernon McGee would say, the rubber meets the road. You know, one is conceptual, but then, man, we live it out. That's what we need to do. Verse 31, then Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents. But he did not find them. Then he went out in Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. 
Now Rachel had taken the household gods, put them in a camel saddle or saddle bags and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot arise before you for the manner of woman is with me. Uh, she's on her period. And she uh, searched, and he searched, but did not find the household idols. You know, we've talked a lot about the sins of the father being reproduced in the, in the sons. And here, Laban, the schemer and this deceiver, now Rachel is exercising what she's learned from her dad, deceiving Laban here. You know? And I just want to uh, reiterate this, okay? If someone can steal your God, if someone can steal your God, hide it in a saddlebag, then sit on them, you know what? Maybe you got the wrong God. You might seriously reconsider your choices in life. Verse 36, then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, what is my trespass? What is my sin that you've so hotly pursued me? Jacob's 90 years old here, and he loses it. He just, he just goes off on Laban. He's angry. And he says that Laban has hotly pursued him. It gives you an idea how Laban showed up and how he went through the tents. He's probably dumping things over, you know. He's going through all their stuff. He's ransacking, uh, you know, all their belongings, going through the drawers. You, you've seen those, those types of shows on uh, TV. In verse 37, uh, he says, Although you've searched all my things, what part of your household have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brother, that they may judge between us both. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. And that was a shepherd's right. He had the right to eat of the flock. And Jacob says, I didn't even eat from your flock. He says, 39, that which was torn by beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen uh, by day or stolen by night. He's, and that, again, that was a shepherd's right. He had the right to bring a torn carcass to his master to show him that it had been taken by a wild animal and he wasn't responsible for that. But not with Jacob. Jake, uh, sorry, not with Laban. Laban held Jacob responsible for any loss. And he was responsible for every single animal no matter when it happened, whether it was taken by day or taken by night. In verse 40, he says, There I was in the day the drought consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I've been in your house 20 years. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you've changed my wages 10 times unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. And that's exactly what Laban, Laban intended to do. He came to take everything from Jacob, take it back to his house. And Jacob continues, God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine, but what can I do this day to 
these my daughters and to their children whom they have borne. Now therefore come, let us make a covenant. You and I, <laughs> let it be a witness between us. You know what? If I can't kill you, let's make a covenant. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there on the heap. And Laban called it, uh, you can read that for yourself. What is it? Jager Saher Durtha. Jager Saha Dutha. Yeah, it's Aramaic. Hebrew is so much easier. Jacob calls it uh, Gilead. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name uh, was called Gilead. Also Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we were absent from one another. So Mizpah carries with it this idea of like a watchtower. And I always laugh when I, when I see them, you know, although I haven't seen one in a while, maybe it's because we lived in Europe and during the time we lived in Europe, they've kind of like faded. They're not a big deal anymore. You used to see them a lot more frequently worn by girls. Now, what I'm talking about is those medallions, those quarter-sized medallions that are kind of like cut in half, right? Uh, and it has this verse on it. it. has this verse on it. And the girls would keep one, and the guys would take one. You know, I don't think I ever saw a guy wearing one. Only the girls, the guys shoved them in their pockets. Maybe, I don't know. And it was, it's called a mispah. And uh, young couples who are in love, they wear them. Did you guys have them? Did you guys have one? Did you guys have one? No? You guys? Me either. Me either. You know what? They don't understand what it is. It's not, it's not a blessing. It's actually a curse. You know, that's what, that's what it is. I mean, they don't understand the origin. If, and this is what it is. It says, Verse 50, if you afflict my daughters and you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar which I've placed between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Jacob, or sorry, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their fathers judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. So the idea of a Mizpah is even though we're apart, God is watching, right? If you hurt my girls, Laban says, which there's no evidence that Jacob ever wanted to hurt the girls. If you take other wives, Laban says, I mean, what are you even talking about, Laban? Jacob only wanted one wife. You know, that's all he ever wanted. Or if you cross beyond this point to hurt me, then God will see, God will judge, God will curse you. I mean, again, I just find it funny. These people are wearing little curses, you know. Like, if you ever cheat on me, you know, curses. But, um, yeah, but notice this. We want to notice here, Laban doesn't know the God of Jacob. Again, earlier Laban referred to God as Jacob's Father's God, verse 29. Here we see Laban refer to him as the God of Nahor, Abraham's brother's God. He refers to God as the God of Nahor and Abraham's father, right? Abraham's father was Terah, and he was an idol worshiper. You know, to Laban, it's just religious talk. He doesn't know what he's saying. It just sounds kind of good. And you know what? Don't you just meet people like that? Just religious talk. 
They don't even know what they're saying. But it just sounds good. It makes them sound spiritual. But as Laban swears by this unknown God to him, Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. In verse 54, Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his sons and his daughters, and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned to his place. This is the last time that we see Laban in the book of Genesis. He's mentioned three more times in Genesis. He's mentioned once in Deuteronomy. And then he falls off the pages of the Bible. He falls off to history never to be remembered for any other thing. Where Jacob, though, on the other hand, he served the Lord. And Jacob stands as this tremendous encouragement to believers of how great God's grace is towards us. I mean, how wonderful his faithfulness is towards us. Jacob is an example. If God can love him and use him for God's glory, he can use me. He can use you. You know, thank you, Lord. God never cast Jacob off because of his shortcomings. And that means God will never cast us off because of our shortcomings. He'll carry us through to the end and he'll present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. But let's let's, uh, close tonight and look at this description of God in verse 42 and 53. God's referred to as the fear of Isaac. And maybe at the end of our study in the book of Genesis, we'll take a look at all the names of God in the Bible uh, or in this book. We've seen so many of them so far. And here's another one before us, the fear of Isaac. And it's a picture of Isaac standing before the Lord, probably, you uh, you know, during a time when Isaac was younger when his walk was stronger, when he was walking closer to the Lord, when he had greater respect and fear for the Lord. That's probably where the term came from. You know, when you think about it, though, fearing the Lord, man, it's such a powerful theme throughout the entire Bible. You know, and I would encourage you to do, (coughs) excuse me, I would encourage you to do a word study on your own. The fear of God or the fear of the Lord, not or, but and. And it's amazing how often the Bible tells us to stand in fear of God. Not to be frightened of him, but to reverence him, to place upon him the highest honor and respect that we can possibly give to anything, to stand in awe of him and to fear doing anything that would displease him. That's what really... The fear of the Lord means. And it's amazing how often the scriptures talks about the fear of the Lord. I just want to look at a couple of them uh, in closing here. Deuteronomy, uh, when Moses recounts what happened when God uh, had given them the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 5.28, Moses says, Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. And now listen to God's heart in verse 29. 
Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. I mean, that's God's heart. Oh, that my people would fear me and keep my commandments so it would be well for them and well for their children, well for their family. That's God's heart for you. That's God's heart for us. You know, he would that we would keep his commandments so that he could be good and be a blessing God to us. He prefers blessing over judgment, over correction. That's his heart as he wants to bless. And it's amazing how often, again, this theme shows up in the Bible. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, the Bible says. Uh, and it says in the Proverbs, Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, that's what I, I, I love that verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Just to know God is to understand. To fear Him is wisdom. Man, you want to you wanna try to discern how what God has for your life. You want wisdom on, on decisions you make. Reverence God. Reverence God. Solomon also said, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I think it's worth asking the question. Again, do you really fear the Lord that way? Do I fear the Lord that way? Do we stand in fear of the Lord? Do you or do I stand in awe of Him? And I mean really, I mean this is, these are the kind of things that I think that the Lord would just have us in, in the privacy of our own heart. Just be honest with ourselves. You know, I've been praying about this uh, for some time now, just is preparing for this study. Is God the fear of Gary? Is God the, the fear of, insert your name here, right? Do you live in fear of God? Do you fear transgressing his ways? Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is to depart evil. It just goes on and on and on. Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. When you get to the end of Solomon's life, he said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He says, this is, this is how I sum up all of it. This is the whole duty of man. This is my advice to everyone. He says, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Just fear God, keep his commandments. That's it, right? It's all summed up in that, Solomon would say to each one of us tonight. It goes on through the Old Testament. It, that, that theme extends into the New Testament. Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body and hell. Paul said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, I pray God would minister to us and we would have the fear of the Lord in our lives. I pray that that would be something that would just mark us as believers uh, in this church. And I pray that we think through these things and see where compromise has crept into our lives. You know, TV, the movies we watch, the movies we watch, the languages, the language we use, 
You know, I can't tell you how many excuses I've heard over the years of Christians justifying, you know, the use of profanity. Let's get real with the Lord. Let's not just play church, right? Let's live what we believe. Let's begin to place God first in our life. And I mean really place him there. And I've said it before, this is the time. This is the time in history for us as believers to get rid of any lukewarm Christianity that we've embraced, that we are living in. Let's take a stand for the Lord in such a way that the world would know without a doubt that we're followers of Jesus Christ. What a title, the fear of the Lord. Is he our fear? Are we really living in fear of God? Are we working out our salvation with fear and trembling? It doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean that we're afraid of God. It means that we're afraid of doing anything wrong, of breaking his heart. That's the fear of the Lord. Is just, I don't want to break his heart. You know, my heart is, this uh, wouldn't be just another Bible study. Just another Bible study. Went there, went through Genesis 30. But that we would give serious thought to our views and our beliefs regarding God in this area. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word. I thank you that it washes over us. I thank you that it's a mirror. Lord, it reveals to us our heart. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and that you would have that perfect work. Lord, that that work which you intend uh, this word to accomplish in our hearts, Lord, that, that it, would, it would occur tonight. It would just occur in our life that, Lord, you would be birthing these things in us. Lord, we love you. We love you. We've given you our hearts, Lord. We've given you our life. We've made a mess of it. We've said, save us, Lord. If you would have me, I'll give you my life. Lord, I just pray that we would live that pledge out in our, in our lives every day, even after however many years it's been for me, 42 years. Even after 42 years, Lord, I want to be more in love with you, more in awe of you, more just enraptured by your love than I was when I first met you, Lord. I want to come back to Bethel, Lord. Work it in each one of us. I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.